1959, the Journal of Science published an article by a professor of physics at Princeton. He had been at Cornell University early in his career when Princeton offered him a chair in physics. Dr. Freeman Dyson theorized that we are increasing our use of energy at such a rapid rate that we would soon consume not only all the reserves that are on this planet, but that even if we could harness harness the energy coming from the sun, we would not be able to get enough energy to keep things going. As you may know, the sun radiates a lot of energy, but it does so in a spherical shape. And because we are 93 million or so miles from the sun, and just a little dot out here, we actually only are able to catch a small bit of the output of our nearest star. So Dr. Dyson suggested that we build a hollow spherical shell around the entire sun and thus the Dyson sphere has fascinated science fiction writers and filmmakers ever since. Some of you know that it was the center topic of one of the episodes of Star Trek. At least I know that. (laughs) Right now, I know you're trying to think of the name of the episode. It was Relics. Remember? Okay. Anyway, our sun produces so much energy that in order for a Dyson sphere to work, even in theory, (laughs) it would have to be as big as the Earth's orbit. That's how big this thing would be. Because otherwise, the sun's heat would vaporize it. Such a sphere would have a surface area of 109 quadrillion square miles. That's 109 with 15 zeros after it, making it 540 million times greater in surface area than that of the Earth. Obviously, there's nowhere around here that you can find enough materials with which to build a Dyson sphere. So Dyson proposed we pop over to Jupiter, cut that planet up, and use it to build his sphere. Now, as hot as our sun is, and it is hot, scientists think that it is actually fairly cool compared to other stars. The hottest stars are thought to be 100,000 degrees Fahrenheit on the surface, and our sun is thought only to be 10,000 degrees Fahrenheit. In addition to being hot, many of the other stars are also believed to be much, much bigger than the sun. Our sun, we think, is roughly 860,000 miles in diameter. To give you an idea of how big that is, if the sun is, since the sun is a sphere, if you were to take, you can imagine if we had a big round ball here and we started putting marbles in it, the sun is so big that if, if we had marbles the size of the entire earth, you could put one million earths inside of the sun. And yet, our sun is small compared to other stars. A, a way to picture it is this. If you were to go to the equator and hop in your car and drive nonstop 
understand you'd have to stop and get gas and food and rest and all that. But imagine driving nonstop 60 miles an hour. It would take you 17 days to drive around our planet. 60 miles an hour times the number of 24 hours a day times 17 days gets you the circumference of the earth. If you were to do the same thing on the surface of the sun, it would take you 1,825 days, five full years. That's how much bigger the sun is than the earth. So the earth is here, 17 days to drive around it, 1,825 days to drive around the sun. Some of the stars are thought to be so big that if you were to get in your car, drive the distance that would be around the surface of them, it would take you 4.38 million days. 12,000 years to drive around just the surface of the sun, of, of, the, of bigger stars. And there are billions of them. There are billions of them. Is it any wonder that stars fascinate us so much? I love Michael Card's song, Star Kindler. A billion bright and holy beams from a light that's traveled far. Began the, tip from, began the trip from his fingertips. Oh, the wonder of the stars. Affirm the signs and seasons. So silently they sing of the wonder of their kindler, of the power of their king. Oh, the fiery suns above us in the vast veil of the sky are your servants, flames of fire, are your silent holy guides. And like the star-led magi, they guide our souls to you as they shine a light of awesome love into eyes that see anew. And yet, for all of the amazing immensity of the stars, for all of the power inside of them with their vast temperatures that would melt our car before it got within a million miles of it, for all of their numbers, and as the psalmist tells us, for all of their glory, God placed them in the heaven with the merest of words. In Genesis 1.16, when God is explaining to us how he created the heavens and the earth, it tells us that he made first of the two great lights. He made a greater light to govern the day, obviously the sun. He made a lesser light to govern the night, the moon. And then here it is, all of those billion bright and holy beams from light that has traveled far. You can just feel the tension as you prepare to read what is God going to say about how he made these fantabulous orbs of burning light. Here's the text. And the stars. That's it. In English, it's three words. In Hebrew, the word the, the article, gets connected to the noun. There are actually only two words in Hebrew. And the stars. Now, we're not told in Psalm 19 all of the specifics of David's writing of this. But the details are easy to imagine. David is a shepherd. Shepherds spent most of their time outside with, well, with the sheep, <laughs> right? They lived outside, they slept outside. He spent many nights in the open field. Often, he would have looked into the deep darkness of the sky and wonder 
over the relative insignificance of people. He tells us this in Psalm 8. He says, God, when I look out at the heavens, at the work of your fingers, at the moon and stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? See, this vast veil of the sky humbled David because it preached a message. It preached of the glory and the power of God. And David heard the sermon. And as he listened, he also realized that no one could escape the message. And then as he sits there in the midst of his meditation, the darkness begins to flee before the ascending sun because he had spent the whole night in contemplation and praise. And as he watched the sun, he realized that in the same way he gets up from his tent and goes about his duties during the day. The sun, as it were, rises from a tent. And as it rises, it rejoices, ready and willing to do the will of God in every way. C.S. Lewis said of Psalm 19, he believed it was the greatest poem in the Psalter and maybe even the greatest lyrics in the entire world. James Boyce, when he preached through the Psalms, Every, for every psalm he preached, he would go to the Trinity Hymnal, which is the hymnal their church had, and he would find, or try to find, a hymn based on that psalm so that they could sing it in response uh, to the sermon. And he found almost all of the psalms have at least one hymn in the hymn book that is directly connected to that psalm. He found seven related to Psalm 19, and he commented in his meditation on this psalm obviously this is great poetry in that so many people have found it useful to write hymns based upon it but even more important it is a profound statement of the doctrine of divine revelation now this psalm as mike has already alluded to earlier in the worship service this psalm teaches about both kinds of revelation what we call general and special revelation. Now, for you who are young, I know probably learning vocabulary words is not your favorite thing. But these are two words that you really ought to know. They will serve you well throughout your walk with God because they, will, they become very important for much uh, that has to do with understanding the Bible and understanding the faith. General revelation and special revelation. And we need to understand those just a little bit as we begin. So let me explain them briefly. Look at verse 1 if you have your Bible. Psalm 19, verse 1. And you will notice there the name of God. The heavens declare the glory of God. Now, in the first six verses, which is what we are thinking about this morning that I read just a few minutes ago, in the first six verses, that is the only time God's name appears at all. The Hebrew word there is El, and it is used in the Bible to be one of two different things. We have uh, overheads on above us. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I could tell because all of a sudden everybody started looking up. It's like, wow, the second coming <laughs> right behind me. <laughs> Do we believe in that? I forget. Anyway, 
Psalm 19, verse 1. The heavens declare the glory of God. The word is El, as in El Shaddai, El Elyon. It is a word that can mean, just like in English, we have the word God that we can write with a little g, and it means just God in general. Or you can write it with big G, and it means the God of Israel. Or it can even be translated, sometimes it refers to people or angels, so it's translated the mighty one. What's important to realize is the word El in the Bible is telling us something very general about God. He, he is the mighty maker of heaven and earth. That's really all it says. It says there is a God, there is some being out there, infinite in power and glory to be able to make such a thing. And as the old King James says it, it is he with whom we must do or as our modern translations translate Hebrews 4, he is the one to whom we must give an account. Now, we don't even know his name. We do not know what he requires of us. We do not know what pleases him. But Psalm 19 begins by saying, there is some being out there who made this, and he must be really big and really powerful to make such a fantastic universe. General information is all you get from creation, general revelation. But it is a kind of revelation. God is telling us something about himself. Now, next week, God willing, we'll study part two of this psalm, and we will see, and you, you can see it if you look at verse, beginning at verse 7. In verses 7, 8, and 9, three verses, instead of one time having God's general name, you will notice the word Lord there is in all capital letters. Six times in three verses... David will refer to this name, which we sometimes uh, transliterate into English as Jehovah. I think we've sung some psalms today uh, with the word Jehovah. Sometimes Yahweh, we've sung today and used that word. Either we, Nobody knows exactly how it should be pronounced. But the important thing to know is it is God's name of redemption. It is the special name that God gave to Moses for his people to use whenever they were in relationship with him. It is the covenant name, the special name for God's covenant people. And so what happens in Psalm 19, David begins by meditating on these stars in the vast veil of the sky. And as he does so, he recognizes that he needs more. He recognizes though the stars and the creation tell us much in general about God, he needs to know something else. See, the world proves to us there is a God, but David recognizes he needs the Word to bring us to God. So that's what we'll look at next week. But today, we want to meditate with David on the world which God made, the world we live in, and what it tells us about God. I've entitled the sermon, or the message today, A Sermon Written in the Stars. Because the Bible says that the heavens and the skies and the sun and the moon and all the stars have a message for us. And the first part of that message is this. The sermon in the stars insists we believe in God. It insists we believe in God. Look at verse 1 again. The heavens declare, there's the sermon, the glory of God. And the firmament, or the skies, show his handiwork. Sir Isaac Newton once 
designed and drew out the prints for a scale model of our solar system. And he knew an exceptional craftsman, so he gave the man uh, the drawings and the man being a fantastic uh, machinist and mechanic was able to make or build a model based on these drawings. He had a big brass ball in the center representing the sun and used bicycle spokes and connected them to different spheres so that each one was the right size and a proportionate distance away from the sun. And it was all geared together. So when you turn this crank, the whole thing twisted and rotated and it produced motion similar to the way the planets rotate. One day, Sir Isaac Newton was in his study reading and a friend came to visit. The housekeeper let him in the door and the friend, as soon as he walked into Newton's study, saw the model over in the corner. He did not hardly even speak to Sir Isaac. He just ran over to look at it. He was so amazed at this contraption and he immediately grabbed the crank and started to turn it and everything is spinning around and He's a friend of Newton, so he realizes this is the way the solar system works, and he just loves it. He just cries out in astonishment, this is tremendous. Who made this? Newton, Sir Isaac Newton, was reading. Nobody. That's all he said. His friend obviously was confused. He said, no, Sir Isaac, you didn't hear me. I asked who made this. Newton looked up and with a perfectly straight face said, nobody made it. I came back from lunch and the balls and gears just appeared. His friend was visibly upset. You take me for a fool? (laughs) I know someone made this. And he's a genius and I want to meet him. So Sir Isaac got up from his chair, laid his book aside, walked across the room toward his friend. They stood together in front of the model and he said, this is but a poor imitation of our universe. Yet even this model, this toy, I am not able to convince you that it has no designer or maker. But you have often said to me that the solar system, which this toy represents, happened by chance. Now tell me, is yours the logical conclusion of a scientist? Sir Isaac Newton was a Christian, and he knew that the heavens declared the glory of of God, the sky above proclaims his handiwork. His friend had professed all his life to be an atheist. Though the Bible says God plainly reveals in his work his existence. John Chrysostom, I guess, is the most famous preacher of the early church. I do not know his original uh, name. He was given the name Chrysostom, which means golden-mouthed because he preached so well and so many people were converted under his ministry that they felt he had a golden golden mouth and able to proclaim the word of God. He said this. This is from a sermon preached roughly 400 A.D. God has placed the knowledge of himself in human hearts from the beginning. Did he send them a voice from heaven? Not at all. God put before them the immense creation so that both the wise and the unlearned might ascend to God, having learned through sight the beauty of the things which they have seen. On what basis will the heathen claim at the judgment that they were ignorant of God? 
Do you not hear the heavens speaking more clearly than a trumpet through the well-ordered harmony of all things? Do you not see the hours of night and day remaining constant and the good order of winter, spring, and the other seasons remaining both fixed and unmoved? Did you not observe all things abiding in order and by their beauty and their grandeur preaching aloud of the Creator? Chrysostom is saying what David says in Psalm 19. The sermon in the stars insists that we believe in God. And the Apostle Paul says the exact same thing. Listen again to Romans 1, beginning at verse 19. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So, they are without excuse. Let me apply this to three possible groups that might be here listening today. Maybe some of you would consider yourselves atheists or agnostics. You need to hear Paul tell you, you have no excuse. You know there is a God, a God who made the heavens and the earth, just as surely as Sir Isaac's friend's friend knew that someone made the model of the solar system. I plead with you, look And listen, the stars silently sing of the wonder of their kindler, of the power of their king. Like the cartoon strip that I've given you on your outline, which has Oliver, the famous humanistic, rationalistic, atheistic scientist, who at least once a year goes out and admits to himself the universe is just too orderly to all be a big accident. (laughs) Just as Bert Breeze says there in that cartoon, we all know and you know that there is a God who made you, who made the world, who is mighty and powerful, who is El, and he is the one with whom you must do. Maybe there are others here today, especially I think about those of you who are entering your college days. Maybe you at your workplace have people that do not believe in God or professors or co-workers or friends who say that they are intellectually passionate and scientifically curious and yet they do not believe in a God who made the world in six days. You need to hear me tell you that you are being misled intentionally. The person who says that to you, she is deceiving you. Now God is not asking for you to make a blind leap of faith. That is not what the Bible says. In fact, the Bible would say exactly the opposite. God is asking you to open your eyes. Only the blind cannot see. Never a watch wrapped a wrist that was not made, and never a star spun in space that does not reveal his handiwork. Only the blind cannot see. Do not close your eyes 
so that you can be like them. And then maybe, and probably realistically, many of you here already believe that God made the heavens and the earth. And I would encourage you and plead with you to learn from this passage how to defend your faith. I believe one of the kindest things you can say to your friend who claims not to believe in God is this. I don't believe you. They know. Now, you don't say that in arrogance and pride. You don't say that with anger and in an attack. But you say it with a deep conviction and an even deeper compassion because you believe the Bible when it says God has made it plain. When the agnostic says to me, I'm not sure if God exists, I say to him, yes, you are sure. And that's what bugs you so much. I loved reading. Uh, I didn't have a, I guess I shouldn't say this since I didn't have a place to put it in the sermon. I loved as I read and did research on this, I found that in the 1930s when uh, the Big Bang Theory was first being proposed by uh, scientists uh, who, who, as we know, do not like God, when it was being proposed, how many people were infuriated with the idea, how many scientists were infuriated with the idea of a Big Bang. And they wrote in these journals, like this Journal of Science, where I found this article by uh, Freeman Dyson. Uh, They wrote in these articles that the Big Bang cannot be true because it implies that there's a beginning, and a beginning proves there is a God. And I found dozens of quotes that says, I can't stand that idea. This idea is repulsive. There cannot be a God. And the reason the Bible says there cannot be a God is because if there is, to him I must submit. Everyone listening to the stars, hears the call to acknowledge the mighty maker of heaven and earth. But belief alone is not sufficient. That's the first thing the psalm tells us about. The heavens declare the glory of God. They insist that we believe in God. But the sermon says more than that. It also insists that we honor and praise God. Look at verses 1 to 4 again. The heavens declare, let's put the emphasis this time not on the word God but on glory. The heavens declare the glory of God. And the firmament shows his handiwork. Day unto day utters speech. Night unto night reveals knowledge. There is no speech or language where their voice is not heard. Their line has gone out through all the earth. And the words to the end of the world. When we sing, when we sing songs here in church, we stand up and you're facing this way and you cannot see that in the back, I found out today, Bernice Schneider can play the piano really well. Maybe you guys already knew that. That was beautiful. Where is she? Is she not going to raise her hand? Ah, there he is. Thank you. Somebody else had to point her out. It was beautiful. Thank you. When Kathy or Bernice play the piano, if you listen carefully, now pay attention, if you listen carefully, you will hear more than simply fingers pounding on a key. Because the music will tell you of the character of the one who plays See, it's not simply 
pushing the little ivory buttons. But if you listen carefully, you will hear the skill of Bernice and Kathy. You will sense the discipline that they have put into their work. You will recognize, if you listen well, you will recognize attention to details that you would, will not hear when I play the piano. You will hear extra little notes added in that tell you so that you can even feel it if you listen well. You can feel her love for music. You can appreciate their passion for worship and the glory of God. And here's what I think may be most important. If you listen really well, maybe some of you have never done this, but if you listen really carefully, you will hear that Kathy and Bernice love you because they have put their best into playing music and serving you in that way. If I might use the word maybe in a slightly different way, well, no, I, don't th- I think it is exactly the same way the text uses it, although it may make you a bit nervous, but the music proclaims the glory of Kathy and Bernice. Because the word glory in the Bible means heaviness, kabod in the Hebrew. What is imp- when, when they play, you hear not just music, you hear what's important to them. You hear it come out. And creation tells you what is important to your God. Do not a billion bright and holy beings scream of the awesome immensity of God? Does not the absolute perfect regularity of the rising and setting sun speak of his attention to every exact detail? Do not the colors and sizes and strange shapes of the planets and stars describe for you his love of beauty and variety? Does not the un alterable consistency of the phases of the moon and the seasons on earth prove to you that he has absolute control over his creation? Do not the orbits of the planet around the sun and the orbits of all the little moons rotating around the planets as they rotate around the sun show you the vast power of a God who upholds all things by his word? Does not the strange but invisible attraction and interaction between gravitational forces and centrifugal forces witness to the wisdom of God? Does not the warmth of the sun communicate to you his care and compassion in providing the climate that is needed for your life? Do not the moon's tides with their cleansing motions on the shore and their circulating power which prevents the ocean from becoming a stagnant cesspool and its scouring as it moves the water up and down the river channel, scouring away the shipping lanes and it 
as it sweeps away all the sewage out to sea and all of the animals that he has made to sit in the bottom of the ocean and eat our sewage for us so that the planet is always clean, does it not tell you that your God loves you? That he cares for you in ways unimaginable? The heavens declare the glory of God and the sky proclaims his handiwork. And lest any complain that they have not heard the sermon, I want you to notice three things about the sermon in the stars. First, in verse 2, notice that the sermon is preached at all times because the stars are diligent in their preaching. Verse 2, day unto day, or maybe even better, day after day they utter speech, and night after night they reveal knowledge. The story is the same, day after day. Night after night, the stars are preaching the message. There is a God. It is He who made you and with you all things. And to Him belongs honor and power and glory. So first of all, it is a sermon preached at all times. But second, it is a sermon preached in all languages. Look at verse 3. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. So the stars are learned. First, the stars are diligent preachers. They preach it all the time. Second, the stars are learned. They preach in every language. Everyone hears. But third, the stars are also Catholic. Catholic means universal because their sermon is preached in all places. Verse 4, their line or their voice or their message or their story has gone out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. They are diligent. They are learned. They are Catholic. So all have heard. All have heard in every place, in every time, at every day, and in every language. And yet, all have failed to heed. All have heard, and yet all have failed to heed, as Paul reminds us in Romans chapter 1. Romans 1 beginning at verse 18 or so, is an extended meditation on Psalm 19, just like we're doing today. And I already read to you some of the verses. There in verses 1 to 20, he says, everybody hears the message. And how does verse 20 end? Listen again. So they are without excuse. Now look at verse 21. Why are they without excuse, Paul? For, verse, one, verse 21 of Romans 1 says, For although they knew God, they know Him, They do not honor him. That's the point of the second point. They do not honor him as God, nor give thanks to him, but have become futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts are darkened. Paul is telling you there that revelation proclaims the glory of God, but general revelation alone is insufficient because although it shows us what we ought to do, we ought to give him honor, we ought to give him thanks, we ought to worship him, It has no answer for our failure to do so. We must have not just the world to tell us there is a God, but the Word to reconcile us back to Him. And then that, so that begins the transition David makes here. And if you use the New King James Bible, there's actually a big space between verse 4a and 5 because there is a transition beginning to happen as David moves, starts the process of moving from general to special revelation. And that's the third point to consider this morning. The sermon in the stars insists we submit 
and confess to God. Look at verses 4b through 6. In them, that's in the heavens. In the heavens, he has set a tabernacle for the sun, which is like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber and rejoices like a strong man to run its race. Its rising is from one end of heaven and its circuit to the other end, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. Now, earlier I pointed out to you a cartoon from Bloom County that ran in the paper. That's not a Christian guy, by the way, in case any of you don't know who Burt Breathed is. Ran in the national papers. I showed you the cartoon where Oliver admitted that the design of the universe insists he believes in God. It's as if Burt Breathed was reading Psalm 19. Because look at the one he put in the next page, the next day. Now Oliver's sitting out under the stars. He looks at the heavens and the stars that God has made. And he realizes that it as it, it is as if they have formed into the letters that say, Repent, Oliver. And he says, Bloody difficult being an agnostic these days. That is the message of the stars. Not simply believe, not simply honor, but repent. Humble yourself before God. Now, in a certain sense, the verses I just read, second part of verse 4, verse 5, and verse 6, do not add a lot to the theology of the psalm. David says the stars, the heavens, proclaim the glory of God, and so does the sun also. It joins the rest of creation in revealing general things about God. And yet, most pastors and and Bible scholars recognize there's something a little different here in verses 4 to 6. There is an additional characteristic of the sun that is different somehow from the rest of the heavenly bodies, the stars and the moon and the other planets. Those all preach. The sun, as it were, reaches out its hand and touches you. It doesn't simply preach, but it presses upon you its message as no other heavenly light does when David says, nothing is hidden from its heat. That's the linchpin on which David turns from general revelation to special revelation. As James Montgomery Boyce writes in his commentary, this line, and he's referring to there is nothing hidden from its heat, this line links the witness of the physical creation to the witness of the word. For the scriptures are likewise penetrating, warming, and life-giving, while also searching, testing, and purifying. David is asking you, God is asking you to look at the sun, to feel its burning heat, and to realize that a God who makes such fantastic orbs must be dealt with. Rather than worshiping the Creator, whose gracious favor has given us the sun, we have set our hearts and affections on our own pleasures as Dan prayed for us in the confession of sin. David notes this. The sun and the stars, they delight to obey their master. In all of creation, we are the only ones who rebel against God's will. And so from looking at them, God calls us to learn from their joy. Verse 5, the sun rejoices to run the race God has put before it. Learn from the sun and stars to 
humble ourselves and seek God's mercy. Well, there's one other thing that I believe would be important for us to notice today, and it's in the book of Malachi. If you have your Bible and would like to turn there, uh, that would be fine. Did I put that text on the thing? I did not. I ran out of room. In Malachi chapter 4, the last book of the Old Testament, Malachi chapter 4, God makes an interesting connection between the sun in the sky and the sun who is the Word. He calls Jesus here the sun, not S-O-N, but S-U-N, the sun of righteousness, as Malachi reflects on this sun that's in heaven with its burning power and the final judgment of God where he burns away sin and how the only rescue for us is a son. And he calls him the son of righteousness. Look at Malachi 4 or listen if you prefer. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven. All around the proud, yes, all who do wickedly will be stubble. And the day which is coming shall burn them up, says the Lord of hosts. That will leave them neither root nor branch. But to you who fear my name, the son of righteousness shall arise with healing in his wings. And you shall go out and grow fat like stall-fed calves. You shall tremble, trample the wicked, for they shall be as ashes under the soles of your feet. On the day that I do this, says the Lord of hosts, remember the law of Moses, my servant, which I commanded him in Horeb for all Israel, with the statutes and judgments. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the earth with a curse. Malachi says there is a son, but there is also coming a son of righteousness who rises with healing in his wings. And the New Testament tells us that is Jesus Christ. So in the same way that the son is the center of all of our planetary system, so Christ, according to the Bible, is the center of the entire universe. He is the one around whom all creation revolves. All of these billions of stars, all of the planets, the sun who delights to run its course, all revolve around Jesus Christ. And so we are told that the church must have Everything that it does revolve around Jesus Christ because the Bible revolves around Jesus Christ. The gospel revolves around him. And the question then becomes for you this. Does your life revolve around Christ and his word? Do you center your thoughts and actions upon him and his ways? The son is the center of all things. The son is also the, the body which gives life to our planet. One of the privileges I had at, at uh, Georgia Tech as an engineer was that NASA hired our mechanical engineering department to design uh, Earth, well, moon movers, I guess they would be called. When NASA in its heyday was going to build a lunar space station, they uh, farmed out, uh, we had a professor at the university who had worked at NASA. And so NASA entered into a contract with Georgia Tech and for senior design projects every year, we worked on uh, the lunar lunar uh, space station and our team uh, was given the project of designing a basically a backhoe 
for, for the moon. And as we worked on this project, the thing that most confounded us was that if you drive the little um, front-end loader or backhoe over to the dark side of the moon, it is negative 280 degrees. And so no matter what oils or greases we came up with that could stay in in a zero atmosphere situation, they would freeze. Then you take your little bobcat and tool over to the, to the sunny side of the moon and it's positive 260 degrees. And so no matter what lubricants we put in there, they boiled. <laughs> in the end, we threw our hands up and said, you go build this. <laughs> without the sun, on that dark side of the moon, without the sun, our earth would be a lifeless rock, frozen in space. And so, the Bible says, without Christ, there is no life. There is no warmth. Is His word, your warmth, when fears freeze your soul? Are his promises the nourishment for your heart when you are down and discouraged? Many of us have learned when we're discouraged to turn to television, to turn to hot fudge and ice cream. The Bible says, make his promises what lifts your heart when it's down and discouraged. Is he the light of your path? and his obedience to his will, your joy. A ninth grade student had a teacher who one day gave him an F on his coursework. The boy reacted as if the teacher had totally caught him by surprise. He just could not believe this. He, How come you gave me this F? And the teacher said, well, you did not pass a single test. You never turned in one of your homework assignments and you would not participate in any of the classroom discussion. The boy stood by his chair aghast and he said, and you mean you flunked me for that? See, the Bible says there is a God and it is plain to all and a day is coming when the heat of the sun will be nothing compared to the heat of his wrath. And there is only one hiding place from that terrible heat. And it is another son, the son of righteousness, who rises with healing in his wings. Will you place your hope in him, both for your salvation and your sanctification? Let's pray. Father, we are so amazed that when we consider the skies above and the earth beneath, when we consider all the works of your hands, that you would be mindful of us. Of all of your creation, we are the only ones that have not delighted to run the race set before us according to your will. We have rebelled, and yet you have set your love and favor upon us, upon mankind upon women and men and children who are rebellious at heart. And you have provided, though in your holiness your wrath should burn away all sin, you have provided a shade, a covering, a son of righteousness who rises with healing in his wings. For those here today who do not know this hope that is set before us, 
I ask that you would move in their hearts, that they would, maybe even tonight, open their eyes and see the stars and hear their silent sermon preaching of the greatness of the God who made heaven and earth. That they would recognize their fault in not giving him thanks as Romans 1 reminds us. And they would look for you for you are not far away and are easily found. Your word has gone forward just as the sermon from the stars has gone forward. Romans 10 reminds us the word of Christ has gone forward calling for reconciliation and restoration and revival and repentance and release from sin and captivity. And Father, for those today who are discouraged, who have gotten themselves trapped in sin or despair or doubt or anguish, fear or worry, anxiety of any kind, would you move them out of their sofas and soft seats out into a starlit night to see again the grandeur and greatness of God that they would realize that nothing is impossible for you. And that if you are for us, none can stand against us. And Lord, for all of us who know the name of Christ, who by your kind favor have been allowed to worship you as you truly are, who have been restored to life, would you please teach us from Psalm 19 how to properly witness to your world and your word to the workings of your hands, that we would not doubt that you can be known, but that we would be testimonies to the power of your revelation. And we would not fear man, but we would rejoice to give you all of the glory and honor and praise and dominion that you deserve. We ask this, Father, through Jesus Christ, in the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. In response to God's word, We want to sing a hymn which reminds us that all of the heavens and the earth praise God. And we too join our songs and attention, our minds, our thoughts, our wills, our emotions, our affections to give Him the glory and honor He deserves.